0: Welcome to Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter, a discussion with senior government marketing thought leaders sponsored by Government Marketing University. Here's today's moderator, Luann Brossman.
1: Hello, and welcome to Market Chat, where we bring clarity to the clutter in government marketing with hot topics, best practices, exciting guests, and innovative ideas. Our Market Chat program is an ongoing series that provides an open and collaborative interaction between government and industry to ensure that our listeners walk away empowered with greater knowledge on how to better market to their targeted federal, state, and local audiences. This is Luann Brothman. I am your host today for Market Chat. I am the founder and CEO of Government Marketing University, and we're so happy to have all of you on our podcast today listening to us. In this episode of Market Chat, we're going to hear from three senior government marketing thought leaders. They're going to share ideas and tips for how government marketers can strengthen your skill set with innovative government marketing campaigns pivoting from face-to-face events to virtual events, as well as making sure you're staying in touch with the pulse of government marketing. You'll also hear insights into how to use LinkedIn for your government marketing reach. I'm very excited to have three wonderful panelists with us today on our radio program, brought to you by Federal News Network. First today, we have Erica Pyatt. Erica is the Manager of Advocacy and Government at LinkedIn. Hello, Erica, how are you?
2: Hi, Luanne. Thanks so much for having me this morning. Oh, you're welcome.
1: And uh, later in our program, we're going to hear from Brian Chudester. Brian is a government marketing thought leader. He's a principal industry strategist, public sector for OpenText, and he's also the host of a new podcast called The Government Huddle on Government Marketing University. Brian, how are you doing today?
3: I'm doing great, Luann. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you're here. And we also have Karen Scott. Karen is a government marketing thought leader. She is the Director of Public Sector Marketing at DataRobot, And Karen also is co-chair of Government Marketing University's Community of Interest Marketing Navis Group. Karen, welcome. Thanks, LuAnn. It's a pleasure to be here. So I am really excited. I've been very excited for the past few days um, in preparation for today's presentation because whenever we can have thought leaders as the three of you really sharing your insights, with our government marketer audience. I just know that everyone's going to walk away, myself included, with great new insights. So let's get started. So Erica, I first got to know you recently um, as we were reaching into LinkedIn because government marketers always want to know how to use LinkedIn better um, to make sure that they're reaching their target audiences within government, meaning federal, state, and local, and also education and healthcare. So You and I have become fast friends over the past few weeks as you've been educating the government marketing community on on what it is that you do for LinkedIn and how LinkedIn can really help our audience. So um, one of the first things I had a question for you on. So let's just go ahead and jump in. So I've heard you say that LinkedIn is a blending of social media and publishing. First time I'd heard that until I heard it from you. So tell us what you mean by that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, We like to push the boundaries of, of how folks think about LinkedIn. But when you think about the aspects of social media and the aspects that are that are kind of core to publishing, LinkedIn really has them both. And what I mean by that is you think about social media, all the various platforms, and what makes them so powerful, what makes them so unique. It's the scale of the reach, the scale and size of the audiences. And in, in our case at LinkedIn, we have over 690 Million professionals globally that are members of LinkedIn. The second I say that is number really again. Six hundred and ninety million. That's amazing. And what's what's really fascinating uh, is that we're still growing, uh, despite the fact we actually just had our seventeenth birthday as a company earlier this month. But we are still growing uh, at a rate of more than two members every second. Wow! Wow! So you get the scale with social media. That's something that's very Absolutely. hard to find <clears throat> with any publisher. The, the, uh, one of the other uh, aspects that's really unique to social media is the first party data. And so what we mean there is when you think about uh, you know, your own LinkedIn profile, all the information that, that you all have been kind enough to, to update and keep relevant about what you do on a day to day basis at work. That's that first-party data that you are providing to us as LinkedIn that we're then able to, to turn around, use with our, our advertisers, uh, obviously with the permission of our members uh, and all the appropriate privacy, um, privacy policies in place, but to allow our, our advertisers to tap into that first-party data that is extremely accurate. Um, and then the third piece that really makes social media very unique is engagement. So it's the reactions, the comments, the shares, uh, things like that, that you just haven't really seen. A lot of publishers have, tr- have tried to recreate that ecosystem within their own digital properties. Um, but I've yet to see any publisher who's really done it in a, in a way that creates and fosters dialogue the way that social networks do. On the flip side, when I talk about the aspects of publishers that are that are pretty unique, is it's the intent the attentiveness. So it's the engagement, the depth of focus on a platform um, that publishers have that in a lot of ways many social media platforms do not have. Um, there's long form content. Uh, most social media platforms don't allow for long form content. And then the third piece, uh, which is more of a you know, relatively recent phenomenon over the, the past couple of years is that trust has become increasingly uh, valuable for for every marketer um, and every place that you want to put your brand. Uh, being in a brand safe environment, being in a platform or, or, or web property where people trust the information and the content that they're seeing, um, that's certainly a leg up that publishers have over the social networks in math. And so when I say that LinkedIn really blends the two, we're able to do all of those different things in a way that no publisher is and no other social network is. Uh, So we're actually, uh, for the third year in a row now, Business Insider has uh, ranked us through a a survey that they run, the most trusted social network. We also run our own internal uh, omnibus survey our members about the trust that they have in the content that they see on various platforms. And we look beyond just the, the social networks to the major publishers. And what we've seen year over year, month over month, is that people trust the content that they see on LinkedIn on par with the content, the trust that they have uh, for the content that they see on publisher sites.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that I was really surprised that I learned recently through you and you, you use the term here, long form content. So we're taught as marketers, less is more. But what I've learned with LinkedIn use all of those, what is it? 1300 characters.
2: Is that per post? You know, it's uh, funny. I don't even know off the top of my head. I don't head. even know either. Uh, like <laughs> I haven't but anyway, it. it's,
1: <laughs> use as much of those characters as you can Because that's only going to help your message um, on LinkedIn. Again, that goes against everything we learn on Twitter and Facebook and things like that. But LinkedIn, you're saying to us, give us as much information, as much content that's relevant as
2: possible. Well, so, there's a lot of different ways to publish on LinkedIn. There are what, you, what you're what you referencing, which we actually call our short form updates. Uh, mm-hmm. For an individual, it's certainly uh, totally fine to write a longer short form update. Uh, as a brand, and if you're thinking about this from an advertising perspective, we do recommend keeping it, it short and tight and sweet and concise. Uh, and then we also have, for individuals, the opportunity to publish a long form kind of blog style post. Uh, Yep. the the word pulse might uh, might ring a bell uh which is what we used to call it uh, back in the day so when we first started only the influencers with a capital i could write long form uh posts on linkedin now it's open uh for for many years now it's been open to all of our members we see hundreds of thousands of those posts every week uh so lots of great content coming from our members and then um over the last now i believe it's eh, just getting up on about 2 years Uh, video content has, has really taken off on the platform. So we encourage um, both from an individual standpoint uh, as, you know, for thought leaders within, within a specific organization, as well as for, um, for brands speaking from the brand page, the brand voice to be using video to do that.
1: Yeah. And I would say listeners, you know, we sound like a broken record, but video, 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 use video as much as you can. It's only going to get better. All right. So, um, LinkedIn is not just a job board. That was a topic of a recent
2: presentation that you gave. So what do you mean by that? Ah, uh, you picked me the, the most controversial thing that I say. Uh, no, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, it's it's not that we're not a job board. Um, that is, a, in many ways, the very heart and soul of our organization. And um, when we take a step back and we think about like, why does LinkedIn exist? What's our what's our vision statement? Where what are we all about? Um, we're here to help organize to help our members um, find economic opportunity. So our vision statement is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. And a large part of that is helping connect talent uh, to the right job and helping employers find the right talent to, to grow their organization. But what we say LinkedIn is not just a job board, um, we're also a really powerful way for salespeople to connect with their prospects for marketers to connect with their customers and prospective customers. So we have evolved over the last, like I said, we just turned turned 17. Um, We've evolved over the last 17 years and really over the last five years to be so much more than than just the place that people come to find jobs or that organizations come to find their talent. Um, So for any organization that's not using LinkedIn as a key part of their marketing and communication strategy, I think you're missing a huge opportunity.
1: Yeah, that that you you made that very concise. So, because you are our LinkedIn guru, can you tell us some, something, or some more than one thing, if you want, uh, that our government marketing community may not be aware of as it pertains to using LinkedIn
2: to gain awareness with our government prospects? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I think the the thing that um, that has Surprised me uh, the first year that I saw the data, and then uh, continues to validate year over year, is that when when surveyed, and this is a, a federal government stat um, that we do seem to to see uh, a little bit of the same reflection at the the state and local level as well, is that. When asked about platform, which social media platforms that uh, these, these government officials, both the elected officials as well as the, the agency folks, um, use specifically for their work. So not just, you know, what, what do you scroll through on the weekends or at night or when you're, you need a break from staring at your screen all day. But when you think about what are the platforms that you use to actually do your job, um, LinkedIn is the number one platform for federal executives for Capitol Hill, and then for the private sector that uh, that plays in this space as well. So I think a lot of folks don't necessarily know that. Um, and one thing that, like I said, that's a federal a federal um, government data point. But one thing that we we see that's pretty interesting is that the engagement level, uh, kind of the the more granular level of government that you get so at the state level and then uh, at the local level as well we see a lot of engagement um, especially from public officials at the local level so it's really exciting Um, if you want a couple of people in the government space to follow um some some uh some public officials who are doing a really great job on the platform uh governors cuomo and um and Ducey, so new york and and arizona um both do a, a a really great job using the platform to communicate with uh with their constituents
1: no i love that and and i think listeners you know pay attention to linkedin because obviously government is using linkedin um you know what are some of the topics so we you shared government is using linkedin and so what are some of the
2: topics that government is using linkedin for what are they talking about Yeah, absolutely. So we uh, it's really neat. We're able to go into our platform data and look in aggregate at people who work in government, and over the last month, what are the kind of topics that are driving their their engagement? So the top, uh, let's go, top five uh, areas that we see them really engaging with, and at the broad topic level, are society and culture, politics and law, Health, uh, probably not surprising, what's going on uh, today as yes. we're all sitting here working from home. Uh, science and environment and technology. So those those are our top five categories.
1: So technology marketers are using it for technology, and of course, for those of you that are have thought leadership products and solutions around those other categories, make sure that that you're reaching out to LinkedIn. Uh, you touched base uh touched on earlier the whole term of influencers and influencer marketing and that is really getting to be has always been something within government marketing but it is just growing quickly and something that we're doing at government marketing university is we're creating a bunch of training and insight um, around influencer marketing we plan on at our gain conference gain 2020 coming up this fall to really zero in on how government marketers can use key influencers to help them again share their products and, and source uh solutions and services into the U.S. public sector. So what can you tell us um, how you feel the influencer audiences that are using LinkedIn and how can we make sure that we're taking advantage of that as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's interesting because a lot of times when people talk about influencer marketing, they're talking about bringing in somebody external who's an influencer to speak on behalf of a brand. And I think one of the, the challenges uh, of influencer marketing broadly is the, the questions around authenticity. So I think on a platform like LinkedIn, the, the best influencers uh, for your own influencer marketing campaigns are your own organization's leadership and subject matter experts. Um, they may not have the name recognition uh, that, a, that a quote unquote influencer would, but within your space, uh, within your industry, they know their stuff inside and out and it's great to help them build their own personal brands. It's a really great way to showcase the expertise that that your company is all about. And uh, there's some recent research um, that we did with Edelman that we now repeat on a yearly basis. What it shows is that uh, the the power of thought leadership is so much more substantial than marketers and the people who create the thought leadership give it credit for so when you think about does thought leadership impact a decision to include somebody in an rfp does it inc- does it impact the uh the rfp evaluation process all of those things we see uh being impacted so I think tapping into your subject matter experts, the leaders within your organization, is the best way to do influencer marketing on LinkedIn and having them speak from their individual profiles as well as from uh, from the brand presence on the platform.
1: You know, I think that you have more than proven that LinkedIn is, is something our government marketers really need to pay attention to. They need to understand that
0: it's got a much
1: wider breadth of functionality and capabilities to help them with their government marketing. Um, One last quick question is, you know, what's the best way for government marketers to get started on LinkedIn?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if you don't have a page already, uh, make sure you do, make sure it is uh, a completed page. Uh, What we see is that pages that are complete and then pages, I'll take that a step further, that are posting on a regular basis. And when I say regular basis, talking like one time a day, um, maybe two times a day if you've got unique information to share, that those pages drive substantial, uh, substantially more engagement. So the first thing to do is start with your organic presence. Uh, we also see that organic, uh, having an organic presence on LinkedIn still does reap dividends in a way that is challenging on other social platforms. So investing first in, in the organic presence um, is the best way to get started. Then having your salespeople... Uh, and your organizational leadership, get active on the platform. Start connecting with customers and prospects is another key way to um, to make the most of your network. Okay. You know what? We always
1: run out of time. And sure enough, Erica, we've run out of time. It's, it's time to take a break. But I would love to have you back because I still have more questions to ask you. So um, we will get those. Maybe we'll do a little Q&A on our website just to finish up some of these questions and find out really ways to make sure we're educating our government marketing community and the right way to use LinkedIn that will benefit them greatly. So I really appreciate you taking the time today to join us on our GMARQ Market Chat radio program. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Luann. All righty, everybody. We'll take a break. You're listening to Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing, brought to you by Government Marketing University on the Federal News Network.
0: Government Marketing University is an innovative learning platform that applies a collaborative, community-based approach towards knowledge sharing and skills development in the field of public sector marketing. Experts from all corners of the U.S. public sector marketplace, marketers, thought leaders, government, media, and sales, are contributing their knowledge to this unique, content-rich platform. Government Marketing University offers training, research, certifications, mentoring, and community resources all in one place. Learn more at gmarku.com.
1: Welcome back to Market Chat by Government Marketing University on Federal News Network. This is Luann Brossman, and I'm your host today. I am the co-founder and CEO of Government Marketing University, and today we're talking with two government marketing thought leaders that are really going to talk to us a lot and give so much insight to our listeners that are government marketers on really pivoting, for example, from a face-to-face event to a virtual event as well as a lot of the relevant topics that are happening in our marketplace today that our listeners need to really be aware of. So I'm really excited uh, to start this next segment of our radio program. We have with us today Karen Scott. Karen is the Director of Public Sector Marketing at Data Robots. She also co-leads Government Marketing University's Community of Interest Marketing Mavens. And Karen, I'm going to ask you a little bit about that as well, because there could be some listeners that would like to be a part of that. We also have with us Brian Chudester. Brian is the principal industry strategist, public sector for OpenText, and he's the host of the Government Huddle, which is a fairly new podcast series led by him um, on Government Marketing University that you can go and listen to um, all of his podcasts on www.gmarku.com channels, and you can listen to that. So, Brian and Karen, welcome to Market Chat. Thanks, Luann. All righty, so Karen, I'm going to start with you, even though this is going to be an open discussion between the both of you, but you both have specific areas that I really want to talk about for our listeners, and the first with you is you had, back in March 2020, you had a face-to-face event planned in Washington, D.C., I think the date was March 18th or 19th? March 19th. March 19th, you had 587 people. So first off, congratulations. That's an amazing accomplishment to have that many government people registered for your face-to-face in D.C. And then we had a pandemic and you had to pivot all of those 587 people into a virtual event. So let's kind of peel back the onion layers here. Take us back to the very beginning and walk us through what happened.
4: Absolutely, Um, yeah, it was quite the crash course in in how disruption is kind of our new normal because I started working on this program back in January. It's it's our AI experience event. It's an event that Theater Robot is hosted across the globe. It's a combination of um, live thought leadership mixed with in-depth training. And it's it's just a very successful event. And it was gonna be the first time for it to be hosted in DC and have it be a government-focused event. So we were super excited. Uh, We started building out the agenda back in January as we started getting more and more government speakers line up and be a part of it. We uh, made a decision, hey, you know, we want to open this up to folks that are outside of the DC metro area. We had started hearing rumblings of just travel becoming a little bit of a concern back in February. So we decided to work with a third party and offer a live stream. So people outside of DC Metro who couldn't travel could still participate and see the presentations live um, from DC. And uh, we would also have recordings of all of the sessions. So that was an added bonus to add some longevity to the the
1: event. And you know, Karen, that in itself was really brilliant of you because we hear so often from government marketers when they're planning a face-to-face event, they don't want to also offer it virtual, because they're afraid people won't show up, right? So I, I, this is why you're a thought leader, because you were like, well, I'm still doing it, because it's still going to serve our audience needs the best, and get that reach outside of DC. So kudos for that.
4: Well, it worked out definitely, because little did I know, just the impact of the pandemic in the DC area, March 12th, just literally, not more than, you know, the like two weeks before our events, they made the announcement of limiting gatherings to 250, uh, no more than 250 individuals. And given our registrations and a 50% drop off, -off, traditionally, just conservatively, we were gonna go over that number. So we made a decision, could the platform that we were running on support moving our whole registration onto it? And we got confirmation that it would. So we had to re-register everyone. And so that was our first obstacle. inspiring everyone that um, we tried to make it as possible as positive a message that they would still be getting all the same great content in this virtual environment with none of the health risk (laughs) that uh, the pandemic was bringing about so
1: so they had to physically go and re-register themselves versus
4: you doing it for them correct so okay we were worried about drop off at the same time we were still marketing the event so the drop off that we incurred was kind of leveled off by the new registrations that we were getting in from the constant promotion. Um, so then March 16th rolls along literally four days before our conference and the limit of gatherings went from 250 to 10. And so that really threw a monkey wrench into everything because not only could we, did we need to limit the groups to 10, um, at our venue we also were facing that the government was being told to now work from home and because of that we did a quick check-in with a lot of our speakers who we had just had prep calls with and they were excited and suddenly now they can't participate because they they were figuring out how they were going to even work from home much less be able to support a presentation remotely that same week so we started losing a lot of our speakers um, we we kept our keynoter and we decided to just completely change the format of the events and transition it to still having a keynote presentation that was moderated and then hosting a fireside chat with our GM. And, our and
1: take it, this is seven days before the event this that you three, had to do all of these. Three that's, days. That's amazing. Yeah, three days. Oh, my goodness.
4: <laughs> I mean, uh, from our GM's perspective, I got, I had my leadership very supportive, like maybe we should just cancel. No one's going to look down, down on us because there's things canceling left and right. Everyone's going to understand. But, you know, when you see this lineup of government speakers and you're part of all these prep calls and hearing their, their use cases and their best practices, we just wanted to salvage something. So, you know, they allowed me to move forward. Um, but. Uh, you know, I think everyone was really surprised that we were able to pull off you know, a program um, in those three days and get the audience that we did. We ended up with about 240 folks on the line live with an enormous amount of Q&A. And uh, it was just a highly successful conversation, really highlighting one of our key customers and uh, we could not have been happier with the result. But, you know, it wasn't all smooth. We, our keynoter actually, it was his first time on the platform, um, just on being in a webcast type format, and uh, he, he dropped off uh, during the presentation. Oh no, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> From his keynote to the fireside chat portion, he dropped off, he started chatting and letting our um, moderator know that uh, he was trying to get back on as quickly as possible. So. It, it was a lot of lessons learned going forward for all of our you know, virtual events, which we had a few scheduled the following week, um, just webinars that we had planned months ago. So it, it really changed the dynamic of things that we needed to now consider as the government was no longer recording from their agency, from their work environments, and they were trying to transition to being at home. So it's... uh yeah. It's definitely a different dynamic and just making sure that you're planning for disruption and prepping for dead air time, knowing that um, pets and children might make special appearances that were unplanned <laughs> during your presentation. You know, it's
1: funny. I was just thinking that because back when you held this, that was early in the days of us now being, you know, very used to being online and Zoom calls and things like that. Uh, and now it's not no big deal if the cat walks across your keyboard or a child comes in or whatever might happen, right but these were the days still where I'm sure uh, government marketers were all perfectionists when it comes to our event. You must have had a high stress level
4: it was uh It was a learning curve, uh, just being able to pivot quickly on um, dealing with those disruptions and then knowing you know going forward that we had to plan for them and make- yeah. We, had, we knew who was going to pick up the audio should one of the speakers drop off. You know, that's a standard practice for us now and making sure that we account for that and know what we're going to do.
1: You know, how are we doing you know, I think out of this, Karen, I want to have a further discussion with you offline because I think there's a list. There's a top 10 list or top 12 list or top 18 list of things to think about um, as you're doing a virtual event. So, for example... Somebody drops off. Who's going to start talking versus that dead space? That's something I hadn't really stopped to think about, right? So I think that that is a great learning tool, listeners. That you know, make sure you know who is going to fill that that dead space if your person currently talking does all of a sudden disappear.
4: Plus, our government, uh, you know, thought leaders they are now participating in a variety of virtual events on different platforms. So oftentimes they might, you know used to unmuting themselves in one way on one platform and then they realize you don't know how to do that on the next platform (laughs) on the next platform
1: that's so true very true so um from this you know what what would you say would be your biggest lesson learned
4: we are really trying to make a bigger point of engagement so i loved you know the fact that erica had brought up on the segment before around how LinkedIn allows you to really kind of hone in on key key targets, whether it's on the appropriation side um, or key leaders within accounts that that you have as targets, um, making sure that across all social platforms, not only are you thinking about the messages that you're putting out to those different audiences of interest, Um, But you're really listening and engaging in the conversation and and trying to uh, measure, you know, how effectively you are with each event on how, how many times did folks within key accounts, key leaders that you're trying to target, are they reacting to your social media posts? If they're responding, are you responding back and trying to start that conversation and dialogue? Because as we've moved from live events, we've... We've let go of some of that networking benefit that mm-hmm. live that we're used to and having conversations stir up face to face. We need to replicate that now in this virtual environment, and we still can. It's just different. And so, you know, trying to train our sales team in making them aware that our our key prospects are still reacting; they're engaging, giving visibility to those to those. Um, reactions. I'll often take snapshots of comments that key leaders yeah. have been sharing that with our sales team and they'll be surprised. And I'm like, look, let's pick up the conversation. They're engaged. They're reacting directly to us about either the next event that we're working on or maybe a piece of content. Let's mm-hmm. really make the most of those engagements. And you know, that. one
1: of the things that uh, we've been hearing from a lot of our media partners, as well as marketers, is that There are some cool creative ways, like you just mentioned as well, for engaging, you know, by doing more polls, um, doing, you know, quizzes where there's raffle prizes, you know, that they win something, could be a $5 Starbucks gift card or something like that. So you were right when you talked about how there are some ways to, to engage Um, I actually am starting to do the research. I think somewhere there's a gamification play here. You know, we can't just be the same old webinars we've always had. How do we add in some gamification uh, pieces to it and things like that? So uh, you truly are a a success story, Karen, what you did. Uh, Aside from that, are are there some other areas just overall in your marketing budget or your marketing plans that you've had to pivot uh, during this time?
4: I think uh, one of the key areas that we've seen some traction on is the nurture after an event, uh, virtual event, live events, um, really looking at those communications that you're sending out after the fact, because it's, it's a long road to, to get to pipeline. And so you might be excited that you got you know, good numbers over to your, your event. Um, but then you know, how are you communicating with them? Are you being sens- more sensitive than maybe you have been in the past in those communications? Um, not trying to put the hard sell and scheduling the meeting, but being cognizant that everyone's in turbulent times right now. And they're right. from a schedule perspective. And so asking that permission, like, is this an appropriate time to connect? Does it make sense? And just being more sensitive overall.
1: Yeah, you know, there's such a silver lining, though, that we're all seeing is that our no-show rates are decreasing um, with these virtual events. So where it used to be just a staggering, sometimes upwards of 60%, 70% no-show rate, those numbers are dropping to as low as 30% no-show rate. So virtual events is is something our listeners should not be afraid of, embrace it. Um, It is the way of the future, I think, you know, at least for the next several months. Uh, We're not going to see these large engaged government groups coming together. We hope we do get back to that at some point. But I think for now, you know, embrace, embrace virtual events is what I take away from what you've said, Karen. And, um, you know, do what government marketers do best is grip down and get her done, right? And adapt. Definitely
4: adapt. Adapt. (laughs)
1: Adapt. All right. Well, Karen, that's been great. You're going to stick around for our next segment. Um, and coming up, we've got Brian Chidester, who is the host of the Government Huddle podcast series on GMARQ and he's going to be providing a lot of insight into what he sees going on out there right now um, in the government marketplace. So our listeners, stick with us, but we have to take a break. You're listening to Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing, brought to you by Government Marketing University on Federal News Network.
0: Government Marketing University is an innovative learning platform that applies a collaborative, community-based approach towards knowledge sharing and skills development in the field of public sector marketing. Experts from all corners of the U.S. public sector marketplace, marketers, thought leaders, government, media, and sales are contributing their knowledge to this unique, content-rich platform. Government Marketing University offers training, research, certifications, mentoring, and community resources all in one place. Learn more at gmarku.com.
1: Welcome back to Market Chat by Government Marketing University on Federal News Network. This is Leanne Frostman. I'm your host today. And today we're talking with three senior-level government marketing thought leaders that are true um, influencers in our space today. We've listened to Erica Pyatt from LinkedIn, really giving us some great information on how as government marketers can use LinkedIn. Um, and as well as Karen Scott, who gave us great information on how to pivot from a face-to-face event. Uh, to a virtual event, and some of the lessons learned that she recently went through. And now we're talking with Brian Chedester. Brian is the Principal Industry Strategist, Public Sector for OpenText. He's also the host of the Government Huddle, which is on Government Marketing University. And he is just I, I'm so impressed with you, Brian, and I'm so glad that you're here with us today because the level of insight and information that you're bringing to our Government Marketing Communications with your Government Huddle podcast is something that we've not had before. So, first off, I want to say thank you um, for leading the charge on that.
3: Well, I appreciate that, Luane. Honestly, it's it's just a matter of facilitating the conversation with those experts. They've been fantastic, but um, but thank you and thanks for having me today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. So, um, everybody, go to gmarkview.com under our channels, and you can listen to the podcast Government Huddle. So one of the reasons that I was excited that Brian agreed to be with us today is, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, he really is a thought leader and looking out across um, the broad scope of government marketing and where we're going and how we need to get there and some things that we need to think along the way. So Brian, I want to kind of toss it out to you because I know that you have a lot of insight that you want to share. I think we could talk for six hours, um, but we don't have six hours. We got to concise this down. So tell us what's on your mind today.
3: And you know me, I like to talk, so six hours. Um, As do I. Yeah, So, and I'm, I'm, I feel really lucky that I was able to go last, honestly, because I got to hear all the great insights that Erica and Karen brought to the show, and all of it's really in line with one major trend that I'm seeing in government, and that's the reevaluation of what can and can't be digital. In a couple of my episodes, um, I spoke to some analysts, and we've given examples, for example, uh, onboarding um, has become virtual now never before would a government organization onboarded folks virtually um, but I think the ability for them to look at things um, and say you know what we could probably shift this to digital teleworks being another thing um, and they've had a lot of success with it so I'm excited by kind of what the prospects of, of this could entail um, you're obviously not just in government but across um, all industries you're seeing telework take off and where a lot of the leadership, Um, really thought, and they've even said candidly, they expected a a dip in productivity. They've seen an increase. And um, part of it is because our our normal nine to fives have shifted and and it's hard to separate sometimes work from from home. But but, um, people are being really productive and I think really embracing telework. Um, And it's been a huge success for the government. So um, I'm excited with what this could then uh, bring on later on
1: agreed couldn't agree more, and you know telework that word has been around a long time, and now we're seeing it. I think government agencies were were prepared um, industry was prepared, and we're seeing the successes of it now
3: no, I completely agree, and an, another element that I've really liked, especially is I, I mean i've I used to telework even before the pandemic, so a lot of this has been normal for me, but seeing other people were were using cameras more um, kind of inviting people into your homes and just being more personable um, has been uh, one of the benefits, I think, of all this. If you want to call, if you want to look at the the brighter side, if you want to call it that, is I feel like I'm developing better relationships with some of my coworkers. And I think that um, is starting to at least take the place of maybe some of the camaraderie that might've been lost uh, by seeing each other on a daily basis.
1: I could not agree more. And how many times before this were we on a zoom call or a webex or go to meeting where we're like i'm not turning on my camera and now it's commonplace and it's almost expected right it's almost frowned upon if you don't um and so yeah that's spot on so what else are you seeing out there
3: um so i mean th- there's a lot one of the biggest things right now that i think we as marketers need to take a look at though is the need to truly drive enterprise value and In government, I think a lot of times um, we would look at things uh, through singular challenges um, because the government is so siloed. Uh, But right now, they are looking at the entire enterprise. And if you have solutions that can really be platform-driven – Um, can provide um, things from A to Z. And a great example is something if you're looking at human capital management, um, there's a lot of application development platforms that are getting a lot of traction with the government. But they're solving problems within human capital management, as well as procurement um, or uh, digital asset management. Um, So I think now as marketers, we need to take a look at uh, the holistic nature of um, the mission of government and really offer up Um, true value from that standpoint.
1: So expand a little bit on what you mean by the holistic nature of government.
3: Okay. Um, So one example that I'd like to give is I'm doing a lot of research right now around the future of government work. And one of the reasons why I like this as I call it an organizing construct, especially from a marketing uh, perspective is it encompasses a lot of different technologies into one kind of galvanizing structure? Um, it, it could be anything from artificial intelligence, which I know AI or uh, Karen had talked through earlier. Um, it could be business process automation or intelligent automation. Um, it could be intelligent capture. It it really focuses on a lot of different technologies solving a lot of different challenges. So as marketers, we need to not look at around uh, singular campaigns around artificial intelligence. We should open up the aperture a little bit and say, we wanna, we wanna bring you into this future of government work environment, and it's gonna be all these technologies that do that. Um, another reason why I like it is, um, and we, so I think you've probably seen a lot around the acceleration of digital transformation in government, and I know we've spoken a lot about it on the podcast. A lot of the things that they're accelerating to um, were, were things that were coming anyway. Future of government work is mm-hmm. one of those things, it's just getting here a lot faster. So it, the same constructs are in play. The same technologies are still in play. They're just being evaluated perhaps at an earlier uh, cycle than they might have before.
1: Well, that's, a, that's just a, a really cool way of looking at this. And I hope our marketers really you know grab hold of that and, and listen to your podcast, which I think give even more information as you go through that. But I've been saying for a while, an example is cybersecurity it's a checkbox, right? It's, it's a horizontal solution that you just should have your product should be secure type of thing. So I think where you're going is is spot on with the advice out to our government marketers around
3: that. That's, and that's the thing too, with the future of work, cybersecurity plays a part in that too. And I'm glad you mentioned that. And it really showcases the holistic nature of, again, what I mentioned government or government's doing as we shift to that future of government work. And we look at telework like we are now. We got there a lot faster, um, and it's become normalized a lot faster than what might have happened pre-pandemic, but it's here. And cybersecurity and endpoint security plays a large part in in what the future of government work looks like. So again, that showcases that holistic nature, um, and cybersecurity is just another technology you can insert into that larger campaign.
1: Into that larger, you know, I had a call one day last week with one, one of our G GMarkey ambassadors, and the ambassadors are all former federal executives, CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, SESers, and they had been brought in to a particular agency uh, because they were struggling a little bit on the telework, and they were not as much technology, but in culture. Oh, well, the employees aren't going to work as hard. And she was really excited to share that now it's been going on for eight weeks, and now this CIO has actually admitted that, wow, we're actually more productive. People are working harder, longer hours, and that was just, I was happy to hear that, you know? Um, the culture needs to change by upper management to recognize that your employees are going to be very functional and work really hard at home from telework.
3: It's an education process, Leanne. And I think that's when we look at a lot of the problems within government or challenges that they're facing, education is really the underlying principle of a lot of them. You can't just plug and play technology and expect a challenge to go away. Um, it, telework's one of those examples. And I say education because, we as managers need to understand how do we manage folks that are remote cybersecurity is another example you can't just procure the solution and immediately all your endpoints are secure it's an education cycle we need to, we need to educate some of those users saying don't open those emails look for these things right. um, so i at, at culture's culture's absolutely fundamental and education's a key part of that
1: yep you know um I've been really impressed with the caliber of individuals that you've interviewed on your podcast series. So tell us a little bit about how you came about selecting or how you will select um, and any advice that you can give our listeners about how they should absolutely be reaching out and getting to know and building reputations and relationships with government influencers.
3: That, no, that's a great question. And um, before the podcast started, I really didn't take a look at the nature of my LinkedIn connections and really maximize um, the usage of them. And I say that because that, that one, that's where most of my guests have come from. I've reached out to them via LinkedIn, understanding, you know, what you would be somebody that a lot of my listeners would learn from. Um, I've also, I, I developed a lot of relationships with uh, analysts just through my um, just through my daily role. And I was able to to facilitate those interviews with them, but um, the thing that I, I wish I had known before the podcast started was how much value they can really, um, they can really bring, and you don't need to be recording a podcast to get that. If, if I could go back in time, I probably would have been reaching out to them and saying, hey, would you mind if I uh, picked your brain for 30 minutes and asked you uh, some questions around these topics? I'm really interested. Um, that I've learned more on the prep calls for my podcast than I do even recording them. Uh, or doing uh, run-up research. So I I think being able to maximize your LinkedIn connections is so important right now. There's so much information out there um, and wisdom um, that you can really glean from it.
1: And before you do that, make sure that your own profile is up
0: to date.
3: Yes. Thank you, Erica, for that for that reminder. <laughs> um, I, I, I do try to do a good job of keeping my profile up to date. It's hard sometimes. And I know I talk to a lot of salespeople within my organization, and, and they'll say we don't have time um, even to post. Um, but it, it is it is really important. And one of the things I'll add on to what Erica said is because I, I like that she touched on um the amount of posting that is is looked at at linkedin um and constant usage is i think she said at least a post or two a day um and i, I try to do a post or two a day and it's really not that hard but i want to bring that back to my sales team and say guys it's not it's not that much time you can post and look at the scale and the value it's going to bring you i think that's really important
1: Yes, and make sure that the message is the same, you know, make sure all of your government sales reps are all saying the same thing about what your company does.
3: Um, yeah, because I, I,
1: you want that same story
3: well and, and another thing i'll I'll say too, and I had Mark Amtower on the show the other day, and as you'd imagine, we talked a fair amount about LinkedIn. and, and one of the things I told him was it's important to maximize third party content too, because it, it people that are in our connection group don't just want to see. Uh, information. I, I mean, I, I work at open text. They just don't want, they don't want to just see open text content. They want to see information right. that's important to them. So I lean very heavy on third-party content, stuff, honestly, like Federal News Network puts out, which is some great content, um, or some of the other outlets out in the market. It's one of the things that I spend my mornings reading and learning and trying to get smart on, on important topics that are going to affect me And I say, you know what, this is something that my connections could probably uh, use and take advantage of. So I post it. Um, So lean into third-party content. I think that's one, it's a great way to um, become an influencer in in the space, but two, it's a great way to support um, the brand when you put other content out there.
1: Couldn't agree more. Well, Brian, again, as I said to Karen, you know, There's so many more questions I'd love to ask and would love to have both of you um, back on our radio program, back on a podcast, you know, providing top 10 list of of the insight because you both offer so much wisdom. Um, You've been out in the trenches to really understand what our government marketing uh, listeners can have to help them be stronger in their jobs. So as we start to wind down, um, I'd love to have just some final insights. So Brian, what would be a final insight that you'd like to leave our listeners with?
3: Um, Especially in the government space, I think we as marketers uh, forego um, some of our analyst relation duties. And I think that's actually an important aspect of of what we can um, provide value within. And I say that because when there's procurement cycles, it's important for those government organizations to get the most amount of information they can. So they go to analysts like Gartner, Forrester, IDC. So, don't forget them as stakeholders. If you're creating content and you're looking to hit on a messaging perspective, target some of those analysts too, because when that government customer or prospect is doing research, those are the people they go to and you want them to speak highly of you. So, don't forget them as a target don't or forget audience.
1: The I think that's a great key takeaway. Karen, how about you?
4: So I definitely agree on that point. I think, you know, I I keep saying that there's a long road to getting pipeline as a government marketer and to really, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest part of that process. And so being disciplined in the metrics that you're looking at across from when you're doing promotions and, and rolling out campaigns, are you targeting those audiences, those analysts, those key individuals and agencies that you're you're interested in? Are they engaging with what you're putting out? Are you making that visible to your sales team? And then, you know, if you have a great event, you're ma- maximizing those, obviously. But then after the fact, um, really taking a look at how are you communicating with them and looking at everything from yeah. our website. And yeah can-
1: great, great insight. Set those ROI metrics up front before you start planning your marketing campaign and how you're going about it, set those metrics. Well, Karen and Brian, thank you so much for being part of market chat today. Um, It's been a great program. And as I said earlier, look forward to having you both back and thank you so much for both of you for all that you do for government marketing university. Thank you listeners for joining us today. You've been listening to market chat brought to you by government marketing university on federal news network.
0: Thank you for listening to market chat. Bringing Clarity to the Clutter, sponsored by Government Marketing University on Federal News Network.